0: Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Our first visionary is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. From his works we choose one book, The Phenomena of Man. Born in 1881 in France, from the age of 10, Chardin went to Jesuit college and was ordained a priest in 1912. His writings emerged after his death. Since the Catholic Church forbade publication in his lifetime. His academic background was in science, and he was to forge a spiritual evolutionary vision, teaching us to see the infinite in nature through modern science. He did not believe in original sin, which together with his views on evolution brought him into conflict with the Catholic hierarchy. And in 1925, he was pushed or self exiled to China, where he worked as a paleoanthropologist and was with the group who discovered Peking Man. It was clear to him that humanity had evolved like any other species. Chardin suggests that we see in a different way, that we emerge from the cave of our limited and illusory consciousness, that to see more fully implies closer union. The difficulty is that humanity is both the subject of experience and the object or phenomena of study. He suggests we raise our awareness to match the immensity that science has opened for us to include a sense of the depth of time, e.g. the age of the universe, 13.8 billion years. The infinitesimal to the immense, for example, the vast differences between the scale of the subatomic particles and of galaxies. The wonderful perfection, growth and development that exists in nature. Movement, underneath apparent rigidity, there is an extraordinary dynamism that reshapes all things, and the interconnectedness and unity of everything. The trajectory of his vision in The Phenomenal of Man is in three parts. Pre-life, life life, and thought. Quote, The universal will to live converges and harmonises in humanity which is the leading branch of evolution. He insists on our significance of some inner impulse towards the emergence of mankind, this hominization process. In pre-life, in the opening chapters of the book, he points to the immense plurality of matter, of atoms. Quote, When we probe beyond a certain depth, The familiar properties of our bodies lose their meaning. Indeed, our sensory experience turns out to be a floating condensation on a swarm of the indefinable. Despite its immensity, the matter of the universe is fundamentally unified, he insists, made out of the same simple stuff, atomic particles. But he qualifies this immediately by adding that these particles are not things in themselves, but an energy relationship. There is a mysterious universal holding together of all matter. He suggests the idea of the mesh or net of the universe, similar to the ideas of David Bohm in his book Wholeness and the Implicate Order, also of Anne Bering in A Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul, and also to be found in the Rig Vedas. This is an energy system that holds the universe together. For example, in science we might say the dark matter and dark energy of the universe, which is 96% of the matter energy of the universe. Chardin is aware of emerging quantum physics of his day in the 1920s and 30s, and that subatomic particles that make up the atoms of the physical universe are really energy packets or waves, a kind of "...homogeneous primordial flux, in which all matter is but a series of fleeting vortices." That is, the phenomenal world, the appearance of things, is held together from below, that is, built from the energy system from which it has arisen. But yet, he insists, it is also held together from above." That is, that there is an inevitable movement to complexity, an entelechy, a teleology, a purpose, an inherent drive towards its fulfilment, which holds the universe together and drives it. Chardin says, the universe is one system but never repeats itself, a quantum order of dynamic interrelatedness in which each atom is coextensive with the universe. The universe in itself is one piece, a mesh woven all deeply interconnected and interdependent, instead of being an aggregation of different parts. It has evolved across vast periods of time, developed and concentrated into higher levels of complexity. From the origins of the universe, whether in the Big Bang or a condensation event, from energy to matter. And then to elementary particles, atoms, the creation of elements, hydrogen, helium, etc. Condensations into star systems, building of planetary material from the elements, and so on. The basic law of this whole development is complexification. Chardin argues that the within of things is coextensive with the without. This within is a cognition of some sort and is throughout all life forms. The elements of consciousness at first are very simple, but grow more complex and differentiated across time. Consciousness is a cosmic property and subject to growth, development, and greater levels of complexity. With evolution, the more complex the structure, the greater the consciousness accompanying it. There is a universal struggle of two opposite principles in evolution. Greater development, complexity, consciousness versus disorganisation and entropy. These ideas are totally in accord with the Hindu Shiva image, which embodies in the dancing Shiva, the Nataraja the two elements the antinomy of the universe of destruction on the one hand and creation on the other. There is a growing mind and spirit emerging out of matter. Chardin even suggests at this point that all energy is really psychic and has an organising capacity that drives evolutionary development. He suggests the earth's primal mass came from the sun and rolled up on itself condensing in a sphere to form the early earth happening to be just the right distance to allow life the earth is a series of concentric zones the incandescent central core then the lithosphere the crust and mantle the hydrosphere oceans seas and rivers the atmosphere the gases surrounding the earth and finally, the stratosphere, the higher reaches of the atmosphere. This beautiful circular, almost Ptolemaic image is consistent with the Gaia principle, as suggested by James Lovelock. He explores two processes that could lead to life crystallization, for example, rock formations, but the way to life is blocked by this path. And secondly, polymerization a synthesis by which compounds and molecules form, leading to organic carbon-based compounds, thus becoming the pathway to life. Matter coils upon itself, like the earth, and has a within, which is a form of consciousness or awareness. He believes that a certain mass of elementary consciousness was originally imprisoned in the matter of the earth, Notice at this point that such ideas come from the mystic traditions. This one is from the Gnostics, that life or light or consciousness or spirit was imprisoned in matter after the formation of the earth. And the task of salvation is the recovery of this light. That light is somehow lost, but embodied and entrapped within matter. Shardan, this was a result of the individualization of our planet, something extraordinarily special about it. It somehow contained pre-life within itself, without reference to interstellar seeding. Shardan didn't adopt this interstellar seeding hypothesis. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer, proposed it, and instead suggested that it somehow comes from within the Earth, some Incredible special potentialization within the earth system. As the material elements gain in complexity, we have the emergence of compounds and proteins, and so too there is a within, the elemental consciousness or awareness, which increases by the force of synthesis of the elementary molecules. This theme that life and consciousness somehow coexist with matter and do not simply arise out of it by accident is central to the Quest series. Secondly, life. Chardin describes the immense fertility, proliferation, and variety of life on Earth, the Tree of Life. He accepts the theory of evolution, but the question is is it the complete story in itself, or is it part of a greater whole? This will also be one of the exciting explorations of our series. So Chardin accepts that variation, reproduction and hereditary factors, as well as natural selection, drive the development of life forms. But he adds extra principles, especially a Lamarckian perspective, an inner drive to complexification, and his odd but stimulating views on enfolding, compression and the spherical influence of the whole earth as well as by remarkable hints of the influence of the quantum effects of the cosmos. Thirdly, thought. Instinct evolves in complexity and reaches the borders of intelligence. Awareness grows in evolution. Reflection is the core of humanness. In evolution, a newly formed center explodes on itself with abstraction logic reason choice and invention perhaps all life is aware but only humans are conscious that they are aware the psychical temperature rises over millions of years the anthropoids our ancestors are brought to boiling point with the emergence of humans the forward progress turns back on itself and unfolding boils and explodes into new form, like water into gas, a change of state. Life and evolution had been preparing for this, he suggests, with bipedalism, the freeing of the hand and the expansion of the brain, three aspects of human development that are always mentioned in the paleoanthropological literature, that is, the study of ancient humans. The crossing of the threshold into reflective consciousness, he suggests, is at a single stride, an alchemical turning point. The emerging human becomes a person. The harmonisation of the whole collective group, the race, at one single historical point. This expansion of the brain, of course, characterises the explosive development of evolution towards human species, that is towards harmonization. But he suggests that the becoming conscious takes place in a single stride. One can't be half self-conscious. This does not take place in a series of evolutionary small developments. You're either self-conscious or you're not. And so he suggests that there was a single movement into self-consciousness. He says there is something in evolution greater than ourselves, moving forward, within us and in our midst. Charan considers how instinct passes into the human psyche, which is not just sexuality and aggression, but a whole range of human activities which have animal inheritance. He sees how they transform as they enter into the human psyche, for example, sexuality into love, aggression into competition or war, and cooperativeness into empathy. A few definitions, phyletic means of or relating to the evolution of a species or group of organisms. Secondly, orthogenesis, the theory that the evolution of a species is influenced most strongly by internal factors and is not subject to the external forces of natural selection. Chardin proceeds that the process of hominization is the progressive phyletic spiritualization in human civilization of all the forces contained in the animal world. There is a specific orthogenesis of the primates, urging them towards specific cerebralization, which coincides with an axial orthogenesis of organized matter, urging all living things towards higher consciousness. And within the evolution of the Earth, there is an inner movement, pushing from geogenesis, the Earth, to biogenesis, life, to psychogenesis, mind, to new genesis, the thinking sphere. New genesis is the emergence of this thinking sphere. The Earth finds its soul a movement to the new sphere. The movement to human thought marks a transformation affecting the state of the entire planet. When for the first time, a living creature perceived itself in its own mirror, the whole world took a pace forward. How did we emerge? Well, like any other species in evolution, Shadon considers the two schools of human emergence Was it in numerous locations at roughly the same time, across the globe? Or was it in one location at a specific point in time? Shadan doesn't exactly make up his mind on this point, since the science of his day could not point either way with clarity. Subsequently, of course, the paleoanthropological community has come firmly to the conclusion that we originated in one part of Africa and then spread to the rest of the globe. He says that mankind is the result of the groping of the world. By groping he means a semi-blind but intentional and purposive exploration. As if evolution is finding its way forward by one means or another. We are the result of the total effort of life. And secondly, no matter how much we inquire into the origins of mankind... Our development from primates has limited information. The real essence of ourselves lies not in our past, our emergence, but in our future, what we are to become in our fluorescence. Looking at the evolution of mankind, Chardin recognises various hominids as intelligent beings, but who are not yet precisely us. The Neanderthals had the first graves, the flame of true intelligence. But it produced nothing. With Homo sapiens, thought explodes, quote, warm on the cave walls, that is, the cave paintings of Spain and France. Continue, quote, prodigiously accomplished and through their art, we can enter into our early consciousness. Homo sapiens is power of observation, a love of fantasy and a joy in creation. A consciousness reflecting on itself and rejoicing in so doing. Homo sapiens' brain 100,000 years ago is the same as ours today. However, humans have a unique feature of their continued evolution. There is a convergence, harmonization in our species, giving it a unique focus ourselves, just one species, whereas other life forms. Fan out into different species. We now know that there were four or five other species of humans, not our genus, but our species, which lived contemporaneously with us in ancient times. Yes, there was a convergence towards the single Homo sapiens, but it didn't occur to Theo de Chardin that the reason for this convergence may well have been that we wiped the competitors out. The modern earth and the domination of the new sphere. After the renaissance in particular, the main changes are no longer agricultural but industrial, implying a change in consciousness. Knowledge then carries us along. There is an increase in the concentration in the new sphere. Humanity now sees space, time and duration differently, especially the immense periods for evolution to take place. There is an irreversible coherence of all that exists. All the network of the biosphere has a common genesis. The world is cast from a single mould. The theory of evolution has taken over all of the sciences. Humanity now knows that it too evolved. Humanity is evolution that has become conscious of itself. Evolution is an emergence in which the whole of life is united in a common structure. Humankind and thought are not an accident or epiphenomena in evolution, but its culmination. There is purposiveness, a half-blind but definite moving forward, some entelechy, a coming into being by one means or another of what is meant to be, an obscure design behind the mutation process. With the rise and expansion of consciousness, Chardin says, quote, mankind is not the final result of evolution, but points the way to the final unification of the world. Humanity is the last born, the freshest, the most complicated, the most subtle of all the successive layers of life, unquote. The laws of hereditary, mutation and genes, now become homonized and characteristics can be acquired or learnt. This is rather like Lamarck, the influence of culture upon our genetic structure. Evolution speeds up, but at the same time, consciousness becomes neurotic. It can even dispose of itself. Mankind at root is anguished by not knowing that there is a positive outcome to evolution. That, he suggests, we have a superlife in front of us. But we doubt it. So, as opposed to forces of dispersion in the evolutionary development towards humanity, there is the opposite, a convergence, concentration, condensation, a focus of the evolutionary energy into one harmonising consciousness. Evolution necessarily means the rise of consciousness and therefore implies unification of this psychobiological operation, a megasynthesis the superhuman, which will be open to all mankind in a spiritual regeneration of the earth. Chardin believes in the emergence of a harmonized superconsciousness, a thought system covering the whole earth, a superheating of thought, an upsurge of unused powers of psychical expansion, an increasing compression of free energy, a new domain comes into existence. Mankind is advancing, even if slowly, towards the omega point, a supreme consciousness. The universal and the personal coincide. The omega point is the soul of souls and is developing at the summit of the world, the great stability, at the end rather than the beginning. It is the ultra-synthesis. In book four of The Phenomenon of Man, as bold as any Hindu mystic, or poet, he states, quote, Love, the affinity of being with being, is not unique to man, but to all organised matter. Nothing appears new in us without pre-existing in the evolution. By rights, to be certain of love's presence in ourselves, we should assume its presence, at least in an inchoate form, in everything that is. Driven by the forces of love, the fragments of the world seek each other, so that the world may come into being. Love in all its subtleties is the direct trace marked on the heart of the elements of psychical convergence of the universe upon itself. Love alone is capable of uniting living beings in such a way as to complete and fulfil them. Mankind is capable of personal limited love to a few individuals, but he is capable of an immense universal love which heals the separation of the individuated and separate particle of the human being with the cosmos. Chardin sees clearly, as a scientist, that the Earth has a finite existence. It must end. But, he believes, we have higher reasons for being sure that apocalyptical disasters will not end the Earth. His reasoning is unusual. It is because human consciousness, in his opinion... Like life itself, can only have arisen once as a unique event. Unrepeatable, like an act of creation, but in evolution. Since there is a purpose to the evolution of human consciousness, it cannot, he suggests, be wiped out accidentally. It would be as if the universe had aborted itself, which is absurd. Human consciousness is irreplaceable and therefore it must reach its goal, the omega point. The end of the world will not therefore be a disaster, but a maturation, a destiny. Quote, a paroxysm leading even higher into the improbable from which we have sprung, unquote. sees an end of physical evolution for humans, as if this job is practically done and instead the further development of the mind, of the new sphere, proceeding to a psychic totalization, in an evolutionary upsurge. He accordingly puts great emphasis on the development of knowledge. He also sees the union of science and religion. As science progresses, it will become tinged with mysticism and charged with faith, as we realise that the universe has an impetus or purpose, that there is progress. Indeed, that it may have an irreversible perfection, according to Chardin. The development of the new sphere implies liberation from the physical aspects of evolution. He considers that mankind might leave the Earth and go to other planets, contact their civilizations psychically, but thinks eventually this is not realistic. He believes the Omega Point is destined for this Earth, and will be achieved in isolation without reference to other planetary life due to the inherent development of the Earth including its curvature and the cosmic convergence of mind which agglomerate and intensify such that mankind as a whole will be obliged to reflect on itself a single point to shift away from its organo-planetary base to a transcendent centre of its increasing concentration. This will be the end of the world but as a completion. The new sphere introverts upon itself, having reached maximum complexity and centrality. The mind detaches from its material base or matrix and enters God Omega. Evil will be reduced to a minimum, he suggests. Disease and hunger will be conquered. There will be harmony and unanimity. Enormous powers will be liberated in mankind. Super-personalization will exist. But what of critical appraisal? Firstly, Chardin has been marginalised by a scissor movement. On the one hand, the Catholic Church prevented the publication of his work during his lifetime. After his death, there was a rehabilitation in the 1960s and 70s, which is when I heard of him, and subsequently, he dropped out of fashion in the church. Secondly, the movement in the life sciences, especially those concerned with evolution, have made complexity theory one of their central principles. However, while this looks good news for the Chardon camp, in fact it has cut the ground from underneath his feet, for complexity theory argues that the emergence, their technical word, of more complex properties and life forms in any system does not take place by plan or design, but emerges spontaneously out of any system especially if there are a few ground rules to start. The life sciences, as well as the Catholic Church, have moved away from Chardin. Thirdly, Chardin's theory has similarity to the creative evolution ideas of Henri Bergson. Personally, I don't think this theory is going to disappear, and I confess I'm attached to it, but it is not popular in mainstream science. Fourthly, Chardin places his theory in a Christian context something not necessary for his argument, though perhaps it was for his religious vision. Once again, the tide has swung against him. For many of those in the declining Catholic Church of the West who have sought vision, have done so outside of the context of the declining Judaic Christian mythologies. Fifthly, Sharan does not integrate a theory of human nature or even a psychology with his vision. While human consciousness is the raison d'etre of evolution, there is no elaboration of what this consists. Sixthly, Chardin's view of evolution is a progressive development towards an omega point, a wonderful theory, but rather optimistic. The darker side of life and evolution is not portrayed in his work. One could go on, the highly masculine theoretical spiritual positions, it is very heady, the need for a more feminine view of creation an absence of the unconscious, the lack of personal revelation of his more complete self in his work. As it happens, I shared some of his background, since I too was sent to a Catholic seminary when young, although much later in the 1960s. But I had my crisis of faith and left the church. One of my decisive experiences in so doing was a vision I experienced at the age of 15 in a retreat three days of silence before Easter, standing underneath a fire escape of the seminary and watching the rain beat down on the tarmac in front of me. And as I fell into my first trance state, I saw the millions of raindrops cascading through the light and realised that all of the particles, individuals across all time, evolved through sexuality and reproduction. And this was God in nature and the cosmos. After this, I could not bear the split between spirit and nature that so pervaded the Catholic Church and had become deeply rooted in myself. When I left the school, by accident, I discovered Teilhard de Chardin's Phenomena of Man, still in my possession, heavily taped and annotated. And then so much made sense. Like D.H. Lawrence, the magnificent novelist, at the same period, actually, as Chardin, He provided the vision that healed this split in Western Christendom. Later, I was to realise that William Blake, the mystic of the late 18th and 19th century, through his poetry, illustrations and paintings, had provided an equivalent, magnificent vision. Given that I know something of his background in the Catholic Church, I feel that his crossroads was when he was summoned by the Jesuit Superior General of this period, Vladimir Ledochowski, a former Austrian military officer who sided openly with the conservative faction in the Vatican. In 1925 Teilhard was ordered to sign a statement repudiating his controversial theories and to remove himself from France after his semester's course were finished. His lectures, filled to Kabasti, Had so disturbed the conservative French bishops that they reported him to the Vatican, who in turn forced the Jesuits to silence him. At this point, he chose obedience, although he was still to formulate his magnificent vision, though not publish it in his lifetime. Had he not signed, but had left the Jesuits the route to an encounter with a wider world, perhaps through the university sector in America. Might have been open to him, certainly not easy, in the Great Depression and the lead up to the Second World War. And there his fertile mind and his publications would have been challenged and his theories perhaps altered and developed. The grand vision of Chardin was of reconciling the divine with evolution. Creation and evolution were not opposites, evolution was the unfolding of a vast intelligence. Creation over the long term, so to speak, rather than a discrete event. He points to the principle of complexification driving the process and to the within of life, the inevitable sentience, awareness that grows throughout evolution, which is a form of consciousness and eventually self reflection. He argues that there is a purpose for humanity in this evolution that we are central to this creation, whose purpose it is to evolve a consciousness capable of reflecting back its essence. Indeed, he sees the further development of this consciousness as integral to the development of an omega point, a universal divine consciousness. He insists that one cannot understand life and evolution unless one sees its purpose, which is inbuilt from the beginning. So much of Chardin prefigures the alternative worldview that was emerging by the end of the 20th century and is central to our exploration on the Quest series. Einstein once said that you can either see everything in the world as a miracle or nothing as a miracle. Chardin belongs in the former camp and expresses it beautifully. This is why he is a visionary, because in an age of materialism, He not only saw but argued at the highest level for the miracle in nature and within human consciousness. He stretches language to create new terms to express his vision. He moves from physics to chemistry, to biology and from there out to evolution, the emergence of the human psyche and to mysticism and sees our purpose in our unfolding consciousness into the future. He combines the analytic left-brain logic of science with the right-brain total context and vision that provides meaning to the immense data of the cosmos. Isolation did not limit his extraordinary vision, which is still a blazing glory. In our contemporary age of the desecration of the Earth, The tragic consequences of the triumph of the materialist world vision are becoming increasingly obvious, not least in the ecological disasters unfolding in front of the 21st century. We need visionaries such as Chardin and many others that we will explore in this quest series to open our eyes, to teach us the old wisdom, to pour the old wine into new bottles, to take the blindfolds from our eyes and in the words of Blake to cleanse the doors of perception so that everything appears as it really is infinite Our next visionary will be James Lovelock and our focus will be on his book The Revenge of Gaia which you are invited to read in preparation for the podcast I hope you can join me then